turn to the Gospel of John chapter 6. When we started this chapter several weeks ago, uh, I introduced this concept or this theme of Jesus is Lord, and it will actually be in the text we're going to be studying today, the first time one of Jesus' disciples referred to him as Lord, Master. Peter actually says that. Well, this morning I'm preaching a message as we conclude one of the longest chapters in the New Testament. I've entitled, Should I Stay or Should I Go? Should I Stay or Should I Go Now? Some of y'all know that song. Should I stay or should I go? All of us have had in our lives those watershed moments, those pivotal decisions that we have made that as we look back over our life's history, we can see that was, in fact, a pivotal moment that changed the trajectory of our lives forever. Amy and I were talking about one such moment in our lives that happened way back in 1999. Back in 1999, I was serving as an associate pastor over youth ministry at First Baptist Church, Fort Meade, Florida, and I got a call from the pastor at Silverdale, Brother Bobby Atkins, and he said, Troy, I'd like you to submit a resume to our church for a staff position that we're hiring here. I got off the phone with him and told Amy, and she said, absolutely not. Her, her parents were in Florida. Everybody we knew was in Florida. And uh, I really wasn't too keen on the idea because we'd only been in that church for about a year. But I told Bobby, we'll pray about it. We'll fast and seek the Lord's faith. And after about three days, uh, we felt the liberty to submit a resume. That's all we were doing, just putting a resume in. A few weeks later, we were packing up the moving truck and moving to Chattanooga. That has proven to be a pivotal moment in our life. First, 1999, if you'll remember, was the year after the Tennessee Volunteers won the national championship. (laughs) Everything in Chattanooga was orange. I didn't know that before moving to Chattanooga. You couldn't go anywhere without seeing orange billboards, orange signs, orange bumper stickers, orange mailboxes that were checkerboard, orange t-shirts. You go to Walmart, half the people are wearing orange. And when they see someone else in orange, what do they say? Go big orange, right? It was everywhere. I won't say it was obnoxious. Yes, it was obnoxious for a Florida fan. Uh, Of course, over the last 23 years, Florida has won 18 of those 23 meetings, so it's not been that bad. (laughs) Sorry, I had to say that after we lost yesterday. But that, incidentally, that consequence is minuscule compared to some of the things that have happened in our lives since moving to Tennessee. It's here in Tennessee that two of our five children were born. It's here in Tennessee that I graduated from seminary. It's here in Tennessee that our children went to college in Tennessee. It's here in Tennessee that two of our daughters met their husbands. It's here in Tennessee, most importantly of all, my four grandchildren were born here in Tennessee. As we look back now, we see that was a pivotal decision to simply put a resume in the mail and mail it that forever changed the trajectory of our lives. I wouldn't be here today had we not done that one thing. We all all know there are pivotal decisions, watershed moments in our lives that have forever and always changed the trajectory of our lives. But there is no more important decision. There is no more important choice than what you do with Jesus Christ. That will forever and always change your life. And in our focal text today, as we conclude chapter 6, we're going to be 
confronted with two groups of people, two sets of individuals. Both of these groups are referred to as disciples. They're all called disciples, but some walk away from Jesus, never to walk with him again, disciples, and some remain with him. Should I stay or should I go? Well, let's look at John chapter 6, beginning in verse 60. This is the word of the Lord. The Bible says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Again, this is the most important, the most pivotal moment in your life, what you do with Jesus, how you respond to the claims of Jesus. We know this decision is not just a one and done, but through the discipleship we have with Jesus, we are always reaffirming, recommitting, rededicating our faith and our belief to the Lord. No, you don't get resaved. You don't get reborn again. You can't lose it once you've been converted by the power of God. But there are people, lots of people in the text who start out with Jesus, but they don't stay with Jesus. They start out following him, but they don't remain with him. They go away from him, never to walk with him again. What this passage reveals to us is the danger of defective discipleship. Are you a genuine disciple, or is your discipleship defective? I heard about a lawyer one time who decided to open up his own private practice, and so he rented an office space. He put a sign out front and moved into the office, and there he was, day one, Monday morning. He's ready to start his own private practice when he gets a knock on the door. Well, as he hears the knock on the door, he thinks, oh, this is my first client. Well, he picks up the receiver on his phone so as not to look uh, like he's not busy, and he says, come on in. And as the gentleman enters, he says, yes, yes, we're specialists in corporate law. We would love to help you set up your LLC. We'll get the paperwork drawn up. I'll see you this afternoon, and he hangs up. And he says to this first visitor, how can I help you? And he says, sir, I'm from the telephone company. I'm here to hook up your phone. <laughs> Lots of people pretend to be something they're not. Lots of people pretend 
to be followers of Jesus. Our church has adopted a doctrinal statement. These are statements of faith that project what we believe about particular Bible truths. Article 5 of our doctrinal statement is entitled, God's Purpose of Grace. And that statement says, in part, all true believers endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by his spirit will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. This doctrine is sometimes referred to as once saved, always saved, or eternal security, or perseverance of the saints. But did you know there is no support whatsoever in the Bible for the idea that just because you start with Jesus, you're automatically going to finish with him. As Adrian Rogers said, the faith that falters at the finish was flawed from the first. We see in our text this shocking statement in verse 66. Look at verse 66 again. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Friends, that one verse should send shivers up and down our spines. Reason being is it would be my guess that most of us in this room refer to ourselves as disciples. Most of us refer to ourselves as followers. But many, most of the disciples who were there at the feeding of the 5,000, extrapolate that out with women and children, some upwards of 20,000 people were following Jesus. And by the time you get to the end of this chapter, it almost appears he's just back down to the original 12. Most of them stopped following them, no longer walked with Jesus. In fact, one who walked beside Jesus intimately for three years, a disciple with a capital D, Judas, he would betray the Lord. He was not a disciple, and Jesus said he is a devil. In this passage, there's a deliberate juxtaposition presented to us between the profession, the confession of faith of Peter, and the betrayal of Judas. Are you a Peter, or are you a Judas? A deceived one. It's a faith in Peter's proclamation that is not fully developed, but it's deliberate. It's a faith where he says that he is believing and knowing who Jesus is. And with Judas, we see you can become very, very close to Jesus. You can walk intimately with him and his followers, but yet not be a genuine disciple. So I've got two questions this morning. You see them on your outline. The first question, why do people go away from Jesus? And the second question, why do people stay with Jesus? Let's consider this first question. Why do people who are walking with Jesus, who seem to be disciples, who seem to be followers, why do they abandon the faith once delivered to the saints? Why do people go away from Jesus? And what we see in the text here, what was true for them then is also true today. Three reasons I see from the passage. Number one, people walk away from Jesus, go away from Jesus because of the difficulty of Jesus' claims. Jesus makes some statements in this passage that are very difficult, that are offensive, that are hard sayings, and they struggle 
with the claims and the statements of Jesus. This is precisely what's happening. Our passage begins by some of the disciples asking the question, this is a hard saying. Lord, who can listen to it? Who can hear it? Now, if you were here last week, you know what that entails, what that's a summary of. In the previous section of Jesus' sermon here in the synagogue in Capernaum, Jesus makes some difficult statements. He begins talking about bread and saying that he's the bread of life, and you can't have true life unless you consume him as bread. But he didn't stop there. He began talking about his flesh and his blood and saying, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He says, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Unless you eat of it and drink of it, you have no life in you. Now, those are kind of gross statements for us, but for the kosher Jew, it was repulsive. Eat your flesh, drink your blood. But it wasn't just those statements about saying, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood that they found offensive. They also found offensive the fact that Jesus suggested all through this chapter that his ministry, that his position, that his power was greater than the hero of the Jews, Moses. All through this chapter, we see him pointing back to Moses and proclaiming himself to be the greater Moses. Moses led the people on dry land through the Red Sea, but Jesus walked on the water. Moses oversaw the feeding through the miraculous bread, the manna from heaven, but Jesus says, I'm providing a bread that's greater than that bread. And so they would have been offended that, that Jesus would claim superiority to the patriarch Moses. And then beyond that, Jesus made claims about his origin, saying, I am the bread from heaven. And last week we saw they said, no, you're not. We know your people. We know your mama. We know your daddy. You're from Nazareth. You're not from heaven. And then this week he kind of ramps that up significantly. Look at verse 62. Jesus says, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? I'm going back to heaven. This would be a very difficult claim for them to accept. He also made statements about how forgiveness of sins comes only from him, about being sent from God, about he's the sole source of eternal life. Now, these statements, they don't hit us with the shock and the surprise that the original hearers would have been hit with because we've heard these things our whole life, having grown up and been in church a lot. We've heard these things, but for them, these would have been shocking, unbelievable, unimaginable statements. And incidentally, it's a good reminder us, to us that there might be some things that we come across in the Bible about Jesus, about his salvation, that we can't fully wrap our minds around. There might be some things that we come across in the scriptures that we can't fully comprehend. Should I stay or should I go? You see, if you want a lot of easy statements, if you want a lot of non-controversial claims, well, Jesus is not your guy. Jesus actually asked this question at the end of verse 61. Do you take offense at this? I want you to circle that word offense on your outline. That English word offense, the Greek word underneath it is the Greek word skandalizo. You might hear an English word in there. Scandal scandalous, scandalize. Jesus is essentially asking the question, what do you find scandalous in what I'm saying? But what do you take offense at? Ultimately, the hard, difficult, scandalous statements that Jesus was making was the fact that all of these things he was talking about, flesh and blood 
eating and drinking his flesh and blood. Those sayings were hints and intimations to what he would accomplish on the cross. We need to understand this. The message of the cross is scandalous. The message of the cross is an offense. Why? Because as he points forward to that cross that he would be hanging on one year from here, that's the next Passover, as Jesus would be hanging between heaven and earth on that excruciating instrument of execution, that Roman cross, what is the cross saying? What do we know from the scriptures? You put him there. I put him there. He's dying because of my sin. And you know what? That's offensive. That's disheartening. I didn't put him there. Yes, you did. Our sin is why he is there. Paul described the offense of the cross in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says to that church, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But we preach Christ crucified. What is it? A stumbling block for the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The message of the cross is scandalous. It's an offense. It's a stumbling block. It's considered as foolishness. I didn't hang Jesus on a cross. And it allows no room for people to save themselves. And that really leads to the second thing, why people leave Jesus. Because of the dependency on the flesh. People go away from Jesus because he claims and he proclaims there is no other means of salvation. Jesus proclaims you add nothing, nada, zilch to what Christ has done. There is no thing that you can do. And this is part of what makes the message of the cross offensive. You can say nothing. You can contribute nothing to your salvation. Look again at verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. Watch this. The flesh is no help at all. No help at all. But our tendency is to depend upon the flesh. Our tendency is to look to the flesh. Our tendency is to depend upon our works, upon our fleshly power, upon completing some list of accomplishments, of keeping some regulation or rules of moral conduct. And think about who he's speaking to here, the Jewish people. He's saying, you rule-keeping, regulation-following, Sabbath-observing, Passover festival-celebrating Jews, all of this stuff you're doing in the power of the flesh is of no help at all. Only the Spirit gives life. And beyond that, Jesus repeats in this section something we considered last week in verse 44, that salvation is wholly and completely dependent, not on the flesh, but upon the sovereign work of God. In verse 44 that we looked at last week, it said that. No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that verse 44 is really the converse of something Wade preached on a couple of weeks ago, verse 37. In fact, look at these three verses. It's kind of the holistic view of the complete presentation of the sovereign work of God and salvation from the lips of Jesus himself. In verse 37, he says, all, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
And in verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then our focal text, he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. People go away from Jesus because he completely rips away from their clutches the idea that they can add anything to their salvation. The flesh is no help at all. And we would think these people would be the last people to walk away from following Jesus. But just like them, people walk away because the Lord puts forward such a high view of God's sovereignty and salvation. And they leave Jesus because he disrupts the dependency of their lives upon their own flesh. Jesus has been saying this throughout this gospel to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. All these things you're doing as a member of the Sanhedrin, as a high-ranking Pharisee, they're nothing Unless you are born of the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. You move to the next chapter, and he's talking to the woman at the well. She's only thinking about the physical, about drawing water. And she, she says, he says, listen, woman, unless you have the new water in your heart rushing up over, you're not going to have life. This is the message of the gospel of John. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. And again, we in our humanness, have the tendency to look to the flesh. We have the natural tendency to look at what we accomplish, at what we have done. For some of us, we look to our intellects. I'm pretty smart. I can figure this thing out. I can put the pieces together. I can get to the bottom of it. The flesh is no help at all. Some of us, we look to our, our connections. Now, I know people. I know people who know people. You think about my parents. My grandparents established this church. Your connections make no value in the kingdom. Some of us think it's because we work hard. I've got a good job. I support my family. I show up early. I leave late. I'm a good provider. I help build business. I help provide jobs. The flesh is of no use at all. Some of us think it's because of our good works, of the good things we do. God, I'm not perfect, but at least I've never killed anybody. may have thought of it, but I've never killed anybody. I've not committed adultery. I haven't sometimes served those snotty-nosed kids in the nursery. Surely, you see these things I'm doing. And Jesus would say, the flesh is of no help at all. We're all tempted to depend on the flesh to give us some kind of an inside track with God. And Jesus says, if you're going to come to me and you're going to remain in me, it can only be by a sovereign work of God through the Spirit who gives life. And friends, this is why verse 66 is such a pivotal moment in this text and in these disciples' lives. Look at verse 66 again. It begins with these two words, after this. After what? After all those things that Jesus has been saying before this. After all those statements about the cross and giving his life and shedding his blood, after those statements about the uselessness of human capacity and stale religion, after the statements, even immediately after verse 65, when Jesus says, nobody can come to me unless it's been granted to him by the Father, after this, verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Wow. 
profound. Not just a few, not just some who were on the periphery, not just a spattering here and there, but most of the tens of thousands of disciples no longer walked with him after this time. They had been walking. They appeared to be genuine, but they turned back because of the difficulty of the things he was saying, because of their dependency on the flesh, but really it all comes down to this third thing, because of the deception of their minds. The deception of their minds. There are those who are deceived into thinking and believing they are true disciples. And this may be the most concerning and troubling of all. Their faith is fake. Their profession is pretend. And Jesus described these kinds of fake followers in another place in Matthew. They honor me with their lips, but what? Their heart is far from me. They're self-deceived. You know, we all have the capacity as fallen beings to deceive ourselves, to be self-deceived, to believe things about ourselves that are not true. We live in a world today where people can claim anything about their own personal identity, about who they are, and in that self-deception, for you to say, I think you might be deceived, oh, that's the height of bigotry and insensitivity. For instance, what if I were to stand up before you today and say, I want you to know, church, I now identify as a tree. Why are you laughing? I'm a tree. I am a tree. I'm a pear tree. I'm a flowering pear tree. Now, I'll give you the permission, if I ever stand before you and say, I'm a flowering pear tree, you can respond to me, no, Troy, you're not a flowering pear tree. You're a blooming idiot. Why am I not a tree? I don't have the internal nature of a tree, right? That's not who I am. People can make the claim, I'm a Christian, but they don't have the internal nature of Christ. And the prime example of this in the text is Judas. <laughs> Judas would say, I'm a disciple. I'm one of the inner 12. I'm a Christian. I was personally chosen by Jesus to be a part of his team. He appeared to be a disciple from the very beginning. In fact, when you get to the end, even as Judas is leaving the upper room last supper meal to go execute his plan of betrayal, you know what some of the disciples thought? Oh, he's leaving to go take the money back to help the poor people. What a good guy Judas is. He had them all fooled. He had himself fooled. And I have a question to ask you. Are you deceived? Are you self-deceived into believing you're a follower of Jesus? The Apostle Paul asked this very question to the church in Corinth, dealt with all kinds of issues and struggles with the church in Corinth. We have two of those letters recorded in our Bible. Notice how he concluded the second letter, 2 Corinthians 13. He says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Judas followed Jesus. 
He observed all the miracles of Jesus. He heard the second to none teaching of Jesus, but his heart was never changed. And we see him him in his life in regret. What does he do with that 30 pieces of silver he was given for his betrayal of Jesus? He tries to give it back. I said, oh, we ain't taking it back. That's blood money. So what does he do? He throws the money on the ground in the temple, and probably some of the saddest words in the Bible, he went out and hanged himself. At the end of his life, Judas looked at this bag of silver and says, I traded Jesus for this. I traded the king of the universe for this job. I traded relationship with the Lord of heaven and earth for my position, for my occupation, for this relationship. Please don't get to the end of your life and say, oh, I regret. I chased the bag of silver and traded Jesus for it. These are reasons why people do not stay with Jesus. His claims too disturbing. Because he said, you can't depend on the flesh. It is of no help at all, but ultimately because they are deceived. This happened in the first century. It's happening in the 21st century. People today are abandoning the faith once delivered to the saints. Oh, they don't call it abandoning the faith. They don't call it making shipwreck of their faith. They have a much more intellectual way of saying it. I'm deconstructing my faith. And Jesus would ask the same question of us that he asked the 12. Do you want to go away as well? Do you? Jesus says, there's the door. Don't let it hit you on the way out. Do you want to go? Jesus has no problem here thinning the ranks. He has no problem whittling down from the ultra mega church down to just a handful. And what that tells me, friends, is that Lookout Valley Baptist Church would be stronger and better with maybe 25 faithful disciples than 250 church attenders. That Lookout Valley Baptist Church would be better with 250 faithful disciples than 2,500 who come for a show. Do you want to go away as well? That's the first question. Why do people go away from Jesus? Here's the second question. Why do people stay with Jesus? What makes people stay with Jesus? Why should you remain with Jesus? Why should you determine not to join the ranks of those who are deconstructing their faith, who are abandoning the faith? Why would anyone stay with Jesus when he makes such offensive statements, such scandalous claims, when he exposes our selfish, fleshly reliance. Why would anyone stay with Jesus? Well, Peter, in this bold confession in this section, gives us two reasons why you should stay with Jesus. The first one is this. Number one, because of the words he says. Because of the words he says. Look again at verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus, you wonder if we're leaving you? 
Jesus, you're asking us if we're going to go. And notice he uses the personal pronoun we. He does it again later. We have come to know and we've come to believe that you're the, you're the Holy One of God. He's the spokesman for the group. And he doesn't know yet about Judas's deception. He says, we have come to know and we've come to believe that you're the Holy One of God. That you alone have the words of eternal life. What Peter is doing here is actually echoing back to Jesus what Jesus had said earlier in his sermon. In verse 63, Jesus says, I have the words that are spirit and life. And Peter echoes that back. Lord, to whom shall we go? Your words have eternal life. In fact, I believe Peter is actually even echoing back here some words from the prophet Jeremiah. Notice what Jeremiah 15, 16 says. Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. And Peter says, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Listen to me. One of the surest signs that you are a true follower of Jesus Christ is your appetite for the word. Your appetite for the Word of God, the Scripture. You love to eat it, to chew it, to hear it, to memorize it, to study it, to be taught it. It is a sure sign of genuine discipleship is a love for the Word. This past week, Amy and I were reflecting on two separate conversations we had recently had with two different individuals. And both of these individuals that are in our lives claim to be Christians. They claim to be followers of Jesus, to be disciples of Jesus, yet they're never in a Bible study. They're never in a small group where they can dialogue about the Word of God. They never come to a worship service or very rarely come to a worship service to sit under the preaching of the Word. Now, that in in and of itself is not surprising. There are literally in the Bible Belt millions of people who claim to be Christians but have no appetite for the Bible. But what struck us, at, struck us as surprising is not only do, are they never engaged in Bible study or reading or teaching, but each of these individuals on separate occasions have claimed to hear the voice of God speaking to them. They, they've made statements to us like, you know, the Lord told me. I just sensed the Lord was saying to me. And I told Amy in that conversation, I will not believe that they've heard the voice of the Lord unless they say, you know what God told me? Repent! <laughs> You can't hear the voice of the Spirit unless you're saturated with the Scriptures inspired by the Spirit. You're not hearing His voice. You're hearing your own voice. And it's amazing that God tells you to do exactly what you want to do already because it's not the voice of God. A genuine show that you are a disciple is you feast on the Word and you obey the Word. His words are offensive. (laughs) His statements are difficult, they're scandalous, but ultimately Jesus says they are life-giving. And Peter says, Lord, to whom are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Not only the genuine disciples stay with Jesus because of the words he says, but secondly, because of who he is. Because of who he is. Notice the second part of Peter's profession in verse 69. And we have believed and have come to know that you 
are the Holy One of God. Now, before we get to the profession Peter makes about Jesus' personal identity, I want to point out the word order, because I don't think it's an accident or incidental, of Peter's profession here about the identity of Jesus. He says, we have believed and have come to know. Here's the point. Belief precedes knowledge. He said, there's lots of people that say, I want to know before I'm going to believe. I want to have all my answers. I want to have all the answers to all my questions. Make sure you, you give me a clear, understandable answers to these questions and, and how you can defend the faith. I'm going to have all these questions answered before I believe. Now, that's not to say that our faith is a dumb faith or not a, a considerable faith, something that we can quantify. This is a faith of clear propositions. We make existential propositions about the nature of God, about the meaning of life and existence. But Peter says we have come to believe and come to know. First, faith must precede knowing everything. You're not going to get all your questions answered. You just simply come and express faith. I believe. Know what? Peter says we've come to believe and come to know. What does he come to know? Look again at verse 69. We have believed and can have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is about the identity of Jesus. Not that he's a holy man of God. There's lots of holy men in Israel's history. Not that you're a holy servant of God or a holy representative of God or a holy prophet of God, holy teacher of God. No, you are the holy one of God. Now, at this point in John's gospel, in the flow of the narrative, we can be sure Peter didn't have all those categories filled out as to how uh, the deity of Jesus and eternality of Jesus was true, but at this point, he believed, and he's come to know. I don't know much, but I know this. You're the Holy One of God. He's made this profound profession, and this was obviously the answer that Jesus was looking for, so we might expect Jesus to pat him on the back. Good job, Peter. You're my star student. You answered correctly, but just like the powerful profession that Peter made in Matthew chapter 16. Do you remember that? Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter spoke up, speaking for the group. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what did Jesus say? Did he say, good job, Peter. You figured it out. He says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, Peter. Don't congratulate yourself too much that you got the answer right on the test. This was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. And a similar thing happens here. We can't leave you, Jesus. You, we have come to believe and to know you're the Holy One of God. How does Jesus respond to his declaration of faith? Look at the very next verse, verse 70. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? <laughs> Peter, don't forget, I initiated this whole thing. I'm the one that came and found you. You wouldn't believe, you wouldn't know, you wouldn't have arrived at this point unless I had not chosen you First, here's the thing. If unmatched popularity, if drawing and keeping a crowd is the truest measure of spiritual success, then Jesus is a complete failure. He's a failure. They all left. 
Tens of thousands of followers of Jesus no longer walking with him after he preached this sermon. But if allegiance to the word, if true confession and fidelity about the nature and the identity of Jesus is the measure of the test, then this sermon from Jesus was a smashing success. As this chapter ends, it seems he's back down to just a handful, maybe even just the original 12. And he turns to all of them and he says, will you stay or will you go? And he says the same to us this morning. Will you stay or will you go? Do you want to come as the Spirit gives life and the Father enables you to have eternal life? If you do, well, that leads to my last thought, and it's a quote from the passage, verse 37. Whoever comes to me, Jesus says, I will never cast out. And what a promise as we move to a conclusion and response.